Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're going to start chapter 12. Let's share in God's good word together. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. On May 8th, 1967, three and a half years after the great speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, I Have a Dream, Dr. King was asked by an NBC News correspondent about his dream. Nearly four years later, and this is how he responded. He said, I must confess that the dream that I had that day in many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. I still have faith in the future, Dr. King said. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul-searching, he said, and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that we have many more difficulties ahead. And some of the old optimism was a little superficial. And now... It must be tempered in realism, in solid realism, he said. We have been lifting up Dr. King over the last number of weeks because he is an incredible example of someone who's resilient. We remember that the civil rights struggle wasn't just one great day in front of the dream or even one dark night in a Birmingham jail. It continued and continued and continues today. Got a long way to go. And then Dr. King ended the interview with a call once again, not for revolt, but for nonviolence. He called out again to get rid of this hate. Friends, read that line with me. To get rid of this hate and injustice. And all these other things that continue the long night of man's inhumanity to man. Resilient. That's who we must be. If we will actually be a part of the transformation of the world. So friends, when our circumstances cause others to become cynical and despairing, we ask God to give us strength and make us flexible to adapt and to continue forward, not backward. And we don't want to just bounce back. We want to move forward in a better vision of the world, a better vision of justice and peace and reconciliation, not victory. Hear that, friends. Dr. King was about reconciliation that God has for the world. Edwin Freeman um, is an incredible writer. If you haven't come across his work, I'd recommend him to you. He died a few years ago. He wrote this. No one has ever gone from slavery to freedom with the slaveholders cheering them on. Right? So the work's being done, but don't expect people to stand up and clap for you. That's not our faith. Our faith is one where, uh, as we sang just a moment ago, the king says, bow down. 
And the followers of God said no. And really, the climax of that story is we don't know whether God will save us or not. But nevertheless, we will not bow down. Now, God showing up in the fiery furnace is a bonus. That's just cake on that story. Icing, right? Or Moses. You know, he has to park the seas not because it's a cool parlor trick, but because the Egyptians are about to kill him. Resilience. Resilience. The requirement of our faith. So we're in week three of our sermon series, Resilient, Finding Strength in the Chaos. And I would, I don't know, if you follow the news this week, it feels a little chaotic. So, we pray, come Holy Spirit. It's the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, where we take our name. So, just to recap, if this is your first time with us, we want to say welcome, you're among friends. So week one, we learned and remember that being loved by Jesus is a what? Gift. But following Jesus is a decision. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. And the goal here is to become ready for God to use us, to really use us, to transform resistance and despair into hope. Friends, you you do realize, and I know you do, that being a Christian is not to consume Jesus, but to follow him, to make a difference in the world, to bring heaven to earth. And as we learn to follow Jesus, resistance is a constant companion. And we don't need to be depressed about that. We don't need to be worried about that because it's that very resistance that makes us stronger if we use it correctly. Now, the interesting thing about resistance is, of course, for those of you who work out, I admire you. Um, (laughs) As I remember it long ago, that if what you want, and this this is hard for us in America, you always need a little more resistance than you can do alone. You need someone to spot you, to help you, because your muscles don't grow until you get to the point where it's no longer in your own strength. The only way you get stronger is with enough resistance, not too much, or it'll crush you, but if you don't have enough, you know, me lifting my eight ounces of Coca-Cola isn't helping me much, right? So we remember Dr. King's words, with this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith. So last week, uh, Dr. Brandon, or Pastor Brandon, sorry, maybe one day. Um, (laughs) Sorry about that. Y'all should have seen him this week. He was amazing. I think of you that way. Um, Last week, Brandon took us through this. It takes a clear identity to ground us and... A strong resistance to grow us, right? So we have to know who we are, but then we have to have enough resistance in our lives to grow us. We see this perfectly in the life of Jesus, and Brandon took us through this last week, that in those days, this is the Gospel of Mark, Jesus came from Nazareth, his hometown of Galilee, that region, and was baptized by John in the Jordan, his cousin. And just as he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens torn apart and, read it with me, the Spirit descending like a dove. Now, Jesus has done nothing that we know of before this moment. It is the Holy Spirit of God that comes and empowers him. And it's after this moment that all of his ministry begins. His miracles, his teaching, his temptation. And the voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. That's Jesus' identity. And when he received his identity as the son of God, the Spirit immediately drove him out, not to the right hand of the Father, but to the wilderness, 
where he would be tempted 40 days, not by God, but by Satan, by the forces of darkness that are always present and wait for your moment of weakness. Tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him because he needed them. He was hungry. He was being tempted, as we all are, if we're going to do anything of importance for God. So the good news of Jesus is that we are loved, friends. We are loved before we've accomplished anything. And I know that's hard for us, but the thing is, if that weren't true, then it would be all about us and all about pride. But we, can't, we know that's not true. Paul tells us that. It's not about anything we've done. It's about what Christ has done for us on the cross by his choice. Professor Cynthia Erickson talks about the power of identity. And she, she says this, Courage requires a Christian identity of knowing you are loved and affirmed by God. That's first. And that your identity is not in your achievements or titles. Then you can take risks and risk failure. And not before. So now you're caught up. So this week, our goal here at Acts 2, some of you know this, say it with me, to help non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. Now, friends, since 2001, we have struggled with that word. It has a negative connotation. But as the church has looked at this over and over and over again, the church has said, not just me, but the church has said, we want to follow Jesus in every way. We don't want there to be a drop-off. It's not three-quarters. It's not halfway. It's not inconvenience. It's all in. That's the only way the world changes, is if the people of God stand with God and do God's things when it's hard, not just when it's easy. To be radical is to follow Jesus so closely that we have the dust of our rabbi on us. Radical, if you look it up, means root. At the root of who we are is Jesus, and that's what we're trying to do. One of the best descriptions of the early church uh, is this. Um, I love this. Some of you have heard it. It actually happened. A community of believers decided together they would live their lives radically devoted to God. 95% devotion wasn't enough. They determined to submit fully and follow God in every way. And they agreed to love one another irrationally. That they would meet each other's needs. They would make sure that no brother or sister lived without. They took off their masks so they could know and be known. And passionately concerned about those outside the family of God, not just in their small group. They reached out to lost people regardless of the consequences. And they prayed fervently that they would have the boldness to proclaim the gospel even if it cost them their lives. And they looked not to the leadership of a man or a woman, but to the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. And every day, they and their leaders asked, what would the Spirit want us to do? What new thing will the Holy Spirit unfold before us today? And with the Holy Spirit in charge, they worshiped God continually. And they honored him by using their spiritual gifts. Everyone played a critical role. Everyone was important. Acts chapter 2. Say the last line with me, would you? We're convinced it can still happen today. That's what we're about here. If you want to know what we're about, that's it. That's it, period, dot. That's what we do. Now, that takes a lot of forms, but that's who we are. That's what we do. Now, I came across this description of the early church during my preparation to start the church. Those boys are 26 and 24 now. It's been a minute, right? Now, they asked me to start, Chantel and I, to start a, a church in Deer Creek, West Edmond, uh, north of 
Um, Edmund Road, south of Waterloo, uh, west of the Broadway, and Penn. We went as far as we could. And there we are. And as I, as I read that description, it turned me inside out. That vision just grasped me of what the church could be again. Now, I've grown up in church my whole life. I was the son of a Methodist minister. We lived all over the state, and I saw a lot of good things by a lot of good people in a lot of places, but I didn't see that Acts 2 church. And I'm, I'm not being mean-spirited about it. I just didn't see that power and that commitment. My dad would always pray that on Sundays it would not rain and it would not be perfectly sunny. It would be just enough to get people to church. Not too nice to go play golf and not terrible enough to stay home. I was like, we've got to do better than that. Our faith has got to be stronger than that. So I long to see the power and commitment of people happy, not just when it was nice and easy, but also happy in the most difficult circumstances. And I wanted to experience, again, what is rooted in the book of Acts chapter 2, where people were so filled with God's goodness. That's Guthrie first, by the way, where we served for a while, that they could not speak. The, they had to speak the name of Jesus. Nobody could stop them. Not fire or water or fear. It was these people that even threats of violence of the Roman Empire where they would dip their heads in wax and light them on fire to show people who was in charge and to light their parties at night. And the others that were lucky enough, they just saw them in two. And yet, they met in the catacombs and their homes with glad and generous hearts. Now that's something. That's something. It turned the world upside down. And we know and we receive our faith because of those people. Now, when I heard this the first time, it was in 1998 at a church planting training event up in Chicago. And tears flowed down my face as I heard this challenge. This is what they threw before us. Think what a local church would be like if its people were radically devoted to Christ. Say it with me irrevocably committed to each other and relentlessly dedicated to reaching those outside God's family with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'd be a church against which the gates of hell could not prevail. Amen? Amen. That's who we're called to be. And I came home from that training event with a zeal and excitement that stays with me even now, more than two decades later. So this Sunday's Pentecost Sunday, if you haven't noticed by now, and we celebrate the Holy Spirit. Coming in the book of Acts chapter 2. It gives birth to the church. So when the day of Pentecost had come, the scripture says, they were all together, together in one place. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from how many nations? Every nation. Under heaven, living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered. They didn't know what was going on because each one of them heard speaking in their native language of each. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they're filled with new wine, which translated, they're drunk. And Peter stands up with the eleven. And he raised his voice and he addressed them. This Jesus, God raised up and all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that, read it with me, God has made him both Lord and Messiah, Jesus. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now that's bold preaching. Peter saw 
Many of the same people put Jesus on the cross, and now he tells them. What's what? He's not denying him. He's not betraying him. He's no longer hiding. There's a Holy Spirit boldness in him that we had not seen before. Now, fortunately, the story ends well at this point. Scripture says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn your life towards God. That's what that means. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And, read it with me, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No qualifiers. You will. If you believe, if you follow, if you're committed, if you're in, you will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And friends, you will need it. You will need it to live the life that Jesus is calling us to follow him. And this is one of my very favorite passages in all the scripture. For the promise is for you. Not just for you, also for your children. And for all, say it with me, for all who are far away. That's why we exist. Because that's the case. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls them. Everyone. Again, no qualifiers. So those who welcome this message, baptize 3,000 people. That's a good Sunday. And they devoted themselves. Oh, maybe you've heard this. Say it with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's where we get it from. It's the close of that story and the beginning of showing us how they lived together. So in the early days of dreaming about the church, we had no land, no people, no logo. I said to Chantel, my wife, I said, you know, honey, I would give anything. I'd give anything to be a church like Acts 2. And she said, why don't you name it Acts 2? (laughs) We did. So friends, when it comes to strength, and this is hard, this is a hard part. Strength is forged in self-reflection. You got to learn your blind spots. Because you know what kills you, right? What you don't know that you don't know. That's what gets you. So you have to self-reflect. You have to invite other people into that process to say, help me see my blind spots. We do this after almost every Sunday. After every big event, we say, well, what worked? What didn't work? What needs to change? Because we know every time we gather, it's not perfect. We're not perfect. We need each other to see. We need you to help us see. There's so many things going on right now in our church at this very moment. I have no idea what's going on. I trust Megan with it. I don't necessarily trust all your kids. But, you know, I mean, there's lots going on. And we have to look and help each other see our blind spots. And Christians have practiced this daily intentional reflection for centuries. Since the very first days of the church. And it is this intentional reflection is that enables us to be adaptable. My prayer is that we're not the same church next week we are this week. I hope we're better. And the next year and the next year and the next year. Because our prayer is that we want God to make us, yes, stronger. But not brittle. Stronger and more what? Flexible. So important that we're flexible. Some of you may know the Acts 2 Beatitude. Beatitudes were in the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, So we made one of our own. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. (laughs) Friends, we met in our home. We met at a Disciples of Christ church. We met at Edmund North High School. We met at Cheyenne Middle School for five years. We met over in what's now the chapel. We've met here. We've met over in the children's building. We've met out here with porta potties and nothing but some hay bales for Bible school. That's flexible. 
You just have to be flexible. And in order to stay calm and stay connected and stay the course, we have to know who we are. We have to have our identity in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes I just love it when I hear God's voice in secular places. Some of you uh, read the Wall Street Journal alongside me. And the Wall Street Journal had an article that said this. Humble people, talking about humility here, Christian character. Humble people tend to be aware of their own weaknesses. Eager to improve themselves. Appreciative of others' strengths. Others' strengths. And focused on goals beyond their own self-interest. Friends, if the Wall Street Journal knows that. I mean, they're saying our story. Because it works. It's successful. It's helpful. It's a blessing. But this self-reflection, friends, it must lead to self-awareness. It's not just to navel gaze and say, oh, we're so great. or any. No, no, no. We have to really look, who are we? Who are we really? And our hope is, is that self-reflection leads to self-differentiation. And self-differentiation, according to Friedman, is the ability to be fully yourself while being fully connected to people. By the way, this is super important at Thanksgiving when weird Uncle Bob comes over. And he says the most wackadoo stuff. And you go... I've never heard that before. That's interesting. And you don't throw a shoe. You don't lose your mind because you're self-differentiated. You're not Uncle Bob. You're you. And Uncle Bob can be off page if he wants to. You can still love him. And he can still love you. This is where I think a lot of our problems in our world, particularly in our country, happens. We think everybody's supposed to be like us. That's crazy. Right? Even when I talk to myself, sometimes I don't agree. Right? I mean, you change your mind on stuff. So here it is, friends. Honest and courageous self-awareness leads to feeling vulnerable. And we don't like that. Because, oh, I'm weak over here. Yep, I am. But if I don't own that, I can't get help with that. I can't get strong. Brene Brown writes it like this. Uh, She researches things like humility and shame and guilt and getting stronger. She says, I want to experience your vulnerability, but I don't want to be vulnerable. Because the way we feel about it is this. Vulnerability is courage in you when I see it, but inadequacy in me. Now, sometimes I have folks that I care about a lot. They'll come to the office or we'll be visiting on the phone or wherever it is, and they will actually share something with me that's super vulnerable. I'm honored. And I feel so close to them and grateful that they would trust me with that. But if you're like me, When it comes my turn, I'm like, "Mm mm-mm, I don't want to do that. Because to give that away gives them power. And I don't know what they're going to do with it. They could really hurt me with that. They could hurt my family with that. See, this vulnerability is something you have to do carefully with people you really love and trust and who love and trust you and that you have some history with. Right? But it's important work. Work we don't really like doing. Because vulnerability is the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty. Risk and emotional exposure. Emotional exposure. And friends, that's not just criticism. Sometimes you're really great at something and you hope no one finds out. Because you don't want to mess up in public. Or you don't want to feel the pressure. I always, my heart goes out to college students who make straight A's their first year of college. And people are like, man, you are weird. But I did. And I know what it's like to think all summer long, can I do it again? Because everybody's watching. It gets harder. Every class, every year, 
I remember I was trying to go out to the weed my senior year, the tumbleweeds in Stillwater. I wanted to go dancing because I had been super strict on myself my entire time. And I got all dressed up and I was ready to head out the weed. And my fraternity brother stopped me and they said, no, you need to go study. I was like, you got a two point. And they're like, no, don't mess this up. Go back and study. You got a test tomorrow, which I did. There's a lot of weight there. To shine or to fail. And one of the major limitations is the fear of standing out. It's more than a fear of criticism. It is anxiety at being alone, of being in a position where one can rely little on others. A position that puts one's own resources to the test where it requires the best that we have. A position where one will have to take total responsibility for one's own response. I've got some good news for you though, friends. We are only as sick as our secrets. And if you can let those come up, you can get healthy, you can get stronger, you can have a good life, it's before you. And those secrets will be known anyway at some point. You do realize that when you're dead, people go through your stuff. (laughs) And they know. They find out. The scripture says so. For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed. This is Jesus talking, the Son of God. Nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. That ought to scare you to death. And also go, well... Why am I hiding stuff? They're going to know it anyway. Everybody's going to know it anyway. And fortunately, Jesus forgives us because he loves us that much. He knows everything you've done, knows everything I've done. He loves us anyway. So as we go through this, I want to give you three warnings because it is hard and it can be difficult. And we need the Holy Spirit. So the first thing is, when we come to these times of chaos and difficulty and uncertainty, beware of anyone with all the answers. Seriously, if you're talking to somebody and you give them a really complex deal and like, oh, that's easy, just do this. You're like, mm-mm, that person has not lived long enough to know what they're talking about. And, and I'll, I'll admit it, you know, if you're under 16, a lot of things look really clear to you. And then you live. And what was black and white becomes super gray. Ronald Heifetz puts it like this. He says, in a crisis, we tend to look for the wrong kind of leadership. We call for someone with answers, decisions, strength, and a map of the future. Someone who knows where we ought to be going. In short, someone who can make hard problems simple. They're not simple. Or we would have solved them by now. And if they're telling you it's simple and it's not simple, they're just lying to you. And that's dangerous. Super dangerous. Also, I'm I'm inviting you to be vulnerable. I'm inviting you to have a better life. I'm inviting you to freedom. Real freedom. Within your family and with the people you're close to. But do not show up to your next staff meeting and share all of your newfound vulnerabilities with your supervisor or your colleagues because they will share them with your supervisor, right? You need to be with people who you can trust. Maybe grandma who's about to die. Somebody, somebody that you know you can trust. And thirdly, as we really self-reflect, know this, you are... Never more in danger to yourself or others than when you refuse to admit that you don't know what to do next. I've been in a car and I heard one of my family members say to the person driving, you're going the wrong way down a one-way street. We were in Knoxville, Tennessee. 
The driver kept driving. They didn't really have a choice. I mean, you're in at that point. You had to find a way. But, you know, wouldn't it have been better had the driver stopped and listened to the people in the car, looked at a map or whatever, said, that looks a lot like a one-way street. What do you think? Should we take it? No. You know, I'm told, if I had more time, I I would Google this. Maybe you can't. I'm told that people have actually driven off cliffs because of their GPS. Because they just trusted it. We're never more dangerous than when we don't see what we don't see. So, when it comes to resilience, friends, resilience is not about becoming smarter or tougher. No, it's about becoming stronger and more flexible. It's about becoming tempered like glass, right? Like the staircase. You would never step on it if it wasn't tempered. And the more challenging the situation, the greater need for learning and self-reflection. Chris Loney says, only those with a deeply ingrained capacity for continuous learning and self-reflection stand a chance of surfing the ways of change successfully. So this following Jesus is an ongoing, ongoing, repetitive, often intense, and humbling process of personal transformation. The scripture says character, it's your character that produces hope. And we can just read right over that, but think about it. If you are in a really dangerous situation or you don't know what to do, don't you want a person of character next to you? You don't want a clown. You want character. Because it's that character that gives you hope that you're going to get out of it. Right? And it is, by the way, your character is the only thing that goes to heaven. That's it. Everything else fades away. Your body fades away. It's very possible that your mind even fades away because it's part of your body. That's a different sermon, but we'll keep going. It's your character that lasts. And and the scripture says in Romans, not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces what, friends? Hope. And it is that hope of God that does not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. It's about the Holy Spirit. And for why we were still weak, not strong, still weak, Christ died for us. For the ungodly. For the ungodly. So, this week, these are more action steps than you can do in a week. Just pick one. I hope you'll pick one. And by the way, we give these to you to do, not to just ponder. (laughs) I asked somebody last week, which one did you do? And they just looked at me like, Oh, we're supposed to do those. Yeah. I invite you to have a family time this summer where you simply share one high point of the week and then one low point. Highs and lows. Be amazed at what you find out, how you share with one another. Another question that's super important is just to ask yourself, what resistance am I resisting? It'll open up a whole new life for you, friends. I spent a good chunk of my life resisting becoming a pastor because I didn't want to. I'd been a preacher's kid. I didn't want to live that life. And thanks be to God, I haven't. I've lived a very different life than I grew up in. But I resisted for a long time. And it wasn't until I yielded that my life really flourished in a new way. What is it that you resist? That you know. That you know. That you're really called to. And this is all connected. Because what messages have you learned about being vulnerable from your family? In my family, we learned that we weren't vulnerable. That's kind of how I grew up. You're strong, you're happy. Not only were we not vulnerable, we weren't even sad most of the time. You could be happy or you go to your room. That was about it. And then, this is a practice that's been around, again, for thousands of years. It's a part of the practices of 
Ignatian, Ignatian exercises, end each day this week with the prayer of examination. They call it examine. And just ask yourself, when did I experience closeness to God or distance from God? When was I comforted and consoled? Or when did I feel desolate? And as you reflect on that, ask yourself the question, what do I need to do or stop doing to live into the strong and flexible, which is resilient, by the way, strong and flexible life that God has for me? And it might be something as simple as spending less time on Facebook. Because I don't know, I'm still looking for the person that always feels better when they go to Facebook. Weird. Something to think about. Will you at least think about those things for me? And if you're super brave, I hope you'll tell me which one you did next week. Hope to see you then. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.